Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Sage Rosenfels, former Iowa State quarterback, 11-year veteran of the NFL, and current Omaha resident. We talked about his unusual childhood in small-town Iowa, his interactions with Eric Crouch, Steve Spurrier, Nick Saban, and Brett Favre, and why Nebraska's fan base annoys him more than Iowa's. It's not hard to describe my parents. They were hippies. Uh, that's, that's what they were. And I think at that point I realized I can do this. I really can play in the NFL. I just brought a team back, you know, 21 points in the fourth quarter. You know, you go from the starting, think you're, you might be the starting quarterback one day and battling it out in preseason to the next day you're watching, a, you know, an SUV. Or I don't know, was it a white SUV or a black SUV driving down the interstate in Minneapolis and we're eating lunch next to Jared Allen and we're like, why is Childress driving far down the highway? I mean, it's such a strange, we're like waiting for them to pull up. This is where I come from. Sage Rosenfels, uh, glorious Iowa State Cyclone alum. Thanks for joining us. Eric Crouch lives down the street. Uh, do you ever ask to see his Heisman Trophy? No, no. I, I don't even know. If, <laughs> I don't even know if I've seen it before. Um, I, we hang out occasionally. I've been to his house multiple times. I don't know if I've seen it. I may have. I, I don't think he's one that has it sitting on his mantle. Okay. Uh, I've also, you know, I'm friends with Ricky Williams down in Austin. So oh, really? I've, I visit him occasionally, and, and his is just sitting out, usually with like, you know, old stacks of newspapers or something like laying next to it. It's not taking care of all that well. Now, how did you befriend him? Well, he and I were teammates in Miami okay. uh, with the Dolphins for, I could, you could probably say four years, though one of those years he took off, I guess. So uh, three out of the four years we were teammates, and, and our son, his oldest son, Prince, and my son, Peyton, were, were really good buddies back then. So... Uh, I still keep up with uh, with them down there in Austin, and, and you know Iowa State plays there every other year, and I've called that game uh, for Iowa State the last couple of years. So okay. I go down there, stare at their place, and it's nice to get some inside info on what what Texas is doing. You get sort of like what running back do you really like, or what's you know what's the problem? He does some stuff with the Longhorn Radio Network, and so um, it's nice to get that inside scoop the night before a game. Huh. Okay. Um... A lot, lot of ground to cover here, and it'll, it'll seem kind of random, but um, hopefully it's, it's not quite like that. When your your folks moved moved your family from Chicago to a small town in eastern Iowa, mm -hmm. you have to pronounce it for me. Yeah, Makokita. Makokita. Yeah. Uh, which I've never heard of before, and uh, and you had a you had an, an unusual childhood, I think, for for at least that time and that that part of the world I did um well if you want to go way back before I was born my, my dad's from Chicago north side Chicago uh you know, grew up in a Jewish household and um my mom was from small town Iowa from Lakota uh, and she grew up sort of uh you know not really on a farm but uh, uh in the country uh they did a lot of uh hunting and, and trapping and fishing and uh, sort of an outdoor outdoorsman life and uh, I mean my mom I think when she was about seven years old knew knew, uh, knew how to uh, shoot a 22 rifle I think or really something. yeah so she came from you know that type of uh, childhood and met my dad at the University of Iowa uh, over the course of a summer uh, when they're about to graduate and they got married not long after that and started having kids and, and they moved all around the country 
Um, you know, people try to, it's not hard to describe my parents. They were hippies. Uh, that's, that's what they were. Um, and, uh, they were is, you know, if you want to stereotype, uh, what a hippie is, that's what they were back in the, you know, the sixties and, and early seventies. So now why did they move all over the country? I, you know, I think they just, they had friends, different places. There probably was job opportunities, different places. They probably wanted to, you know, these, the, at that time it, it was very, they were unconventional. So it wasn't, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna buy a house in the suburbs and I'm gonna get a job for the next four years and this is gonna be our life. I think they were, uh, there was a sense of adventure. Uh, they traveled to Europe for you know, months or six months at a time. Um, they lived in uh, San Francisco, Montana, uh, back to Chicago where my brother was born. And so they had three children and I think they were thinking about having a fourth and they thought, you know, we, uh, Chicago is expensive and um, they're, they're in the city. And I think they always wanted to really live in the country and raise their, their kids uh, in the country and have a big organic farm and all those types of things. So they moved to, to Iowa and uh, outside my hometown and, and that's where I was born. Um, and that's where really uh, they lived until my younger sister graduated. So I'm the fourth of five kids. And uh, now they live in Iowa City in your classic sort of, you know, uh, you could say suburb house or whatever you want to call it, prototypical American, you know, ranch with a walkout basement and have direct TV and all those types of things. But we didn't have that growing up, that's for sure. So we had a garden that was almost an acre. Um, wow. We raised about, uh, about 50 chickens a year, uh, some for the eggs, but I think mostly for, you know, the, the, the meat and, uh, um, so yeah, you, I mean, you grew your own food. You a lot of it. I mean, yeah, we still went shopping, but we had a, we had a tight budget. Uh, making money was not uh, a, a value that my parents thought was important, um, or making the most money possible. I should say, uh, your quality of life, uh, living a lifestyle that they wanted to live and raise their, their children in, uh, was was first and foremost important. My mom was a uh, midwife, which is sort of a part time job, obviously, that you don't go into work every single day. With that type of job, but over the course of about 20 years, she delivered about 250 babies. Really? Um, you know, I mean, a, a home midwife. You know, you if you wanted, if you use my mom, you uh, or I should say, work with my mom, however you want to say it. Uh, you you probably delivered your child in your bedroom. Um, and you were born in your house, right? I was born in my house. All my siblings were. We're all born at home. My dad uh, delivered all of us. Um, my dad owned a. Uh, about the year I was born, he started a little uh, wood burning stove store in my hometown. Uh, they thought that was sort of an alternative fuel to what everyone else was using at the time. Um, that turned into more fireplaces than gas fireplaces. And then, you know, everyone has a gas fireplace, it seems like, right? So he sort of got into be uh, a, a rep for a, a big company um, in the gas fireplace world. Uh, that, but that was more uh, towards when I was going to college uh, and graduating high school, sort of that end. So for most of my youth, um, you know, my dad took the summers off. No one buys a, a uh, wood burning stove in June and July, right? So what's the point of work? Is that which, which gave them a chance to to raise uh, all of us uh, and, and uh, one travel around, but to have that big garden, uh, raise those chickens, and really sort of almost work on the farm in the summertime. We had about ten acres, so yeah, I, I my you know Tom Brady's from San Mateo, California, which is basically southern San Francisco. Um, you know Peyton Manning obviously had his childhood in, in New Orleans with you know Archie's son. And you know, my, my mine's very different than theirs. Um, 
me, yeah, hippie parents in, in the country in Iowa. So you must have got. Um, first of all, I'm thinking of the Field of Dreams parents here, who you know were the, were the hippies of, of their little yeah, Iowa sort village. of. Well, that that Dyersville, Iowa, is was only about 45 minutes away from my hometown. They were in our conference, and so it was. I I, I visited the Field of Dreams many many times. Uh, growing up and um, yeah you could sort of say that but they were almost in between right so my parents would, would be uh, I don't know if Kevin Costner back in was a 1988 or 90 or something like that would be 70 years old at this point I think he'd still be a little bit younger but yeah that same sort of uh, um, uh, way of thinking um, what about, were the social consequences <clears throat> uh, I imagine you were I don't want to say an outcast but uh, what were the social ramifications of you growing up in... in so, so Makoka is a town, uh, and really I grew up in the town of Andrew. So my, okay. my parents bought this property, um, I, I believe, for like $52,000 on 10 acres, this house. And it was situated between Andrew and Makoka. And Andrew, you really have to look hard in the map. Uh, it's, a, it's a cute little small town, about 300, 350 people. Um, and we, we lived in between Andrew and Maquoketa. So about middle school, I transferred to Maquoketa. We all did. Uh, everyone in my family ended up transferring over. Uh, I think we thought there was just better opportunities um, in more foreign languages, better, more sports, better sports. Uh, my dad worked in Maquoketa. His store was in Maquoketa at the time. So it made sense. But yeah, the, if you want to talk about social ramifications of being named Sage Rosenfels <laughs> in, a, in small town Iowa, which I don't know, I'm sure my hometown is... 99% Christian of some sorts, uh, probably two-thirds Catholic or something. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it was very unusual. You know, my dad's, there was another Jewish family from my hometown. I believe there was one and, um, and, and us. So uh, we weren't really Jewish. Uh, my, my, you could say my dad raised us uh, to understand what the Jewish holidays were. Of course, you, you sort of naturally understood what the Christian holidays were based off that's what all your friends were doing. Right. Um, so, but yeah, you, I, I can't say I was an outcast, but we were, we were very different. Uh, the Rosenfels were, were very different and known to be different in my hometown. I think some people really appreciated that and absolutely loved it. Um, and I think some people thought that was really strange and weird. Um, and that's just fine. Uh, but uh, How did it influence you? How did, how did, what impact did that have on you, sort of being different? I think as I've, I've gotten older, um, I think it's okay to be different. Um, it's okay to be unique, to have your own ideas, uh, as long as you have, um, you know, some sort of basis to, to, to go off of when you're in a political conversation, a religious conversation, conversation about uh, the economy, you know, all those types of things. You know, every, I, I think that for the most part, um, I was raised to sort of see uh, our country, our world from a different angle. Um, you know, as I said, we had this huge organic garden. We didn't cart organic growing up. I know my dad didn't use like herbicides and pesticides and those types of things. Um, uh, but the organic wasn't a word we used, it just was. And so you could probably start, I, I think I said one time in a, in a USA Today article, back when I was playing that, um, my parents um, were organic before organic was cool, you know, type of thing. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a very different childhood, but I'm really happy I had it. I tried to, uh, in the suburbs of Omaha, uh, get my kids to experience some of that as much as possible. Um, sometimes it's here by the way I cook or by the way I, you know, make up, uh, make them or myself mow the yard. Uh, I have gardens as two garden beds in my backyard, um, to where we travel, 
you know, I, I don't, we don't go to resorts. We don't go to uh, the fancy place on the beach. Um, uh, probably because I said, I, th I think the way my parents raised us, it was always a learn about something uh, when you're doing it. And so, you know, when I travel, I just took them to Costa Rica uh, for spring break. Um, I, I took them to Sedona a couple years ago in the Grand Canyon. Um, you know, the, the, the science and the, the environment and, and um, uh, the eco diversity of, of our country and, and of our world, uh, I'm trying to uh, instill in my kids as much as possible so they appreciate the, everything. People, uh, people that are different, people that are poor, people that are rich, people that are whatever, and sort of show them everything. And then they can just sort of decide what type of life they want to live when they're older. Rather than what I feel like a lot of people probably do is um, protect their kids uh, from different people that are different or things that are different. Um, and But I, I feel like um, that when you do that, uh, kids don't have as much maybe empathy or compassion for people who aren't just like them, whether it's a religious-based difference or they look different uh, or they have different uh, morals or values. Um, I think at the end of the day, almost all people are shooting for the same thing, and that's just to have a nice, happy life. Uh, but I, I feel like some people try to protect their children from people that are different, and I try to expose them to as many uh, unique situations as possible. You are a Elkhorn hippie, which is a... I guess. There's not many out here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm a hippie, though. You know, I, I, um, I see both sides of... I, I, believe me, I see both sides of life. And I, I can't say both. I see all sides of life um, from uh, the people I invest with uh, who are, uh, they're not in the top 1%, they're in the top you know, 0.1%. They, you know, a lot of people have done really, really well that I deal with regularly on a daily basis with investments and things like that, um, with real estate development deals. I mean, those aren't hippies, right? So uh, I, I see all facets, uh, I believe, and, and um, um, I'm always willing to meet somebody on the street and, and learn their story and learn why they think the way they think. But uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm a little bit different out here. I'm a, you know, a dad that's home a lot of the day. Uh, I do stuff for my house. I, have, I write articles and, and do radio shows and podcasts. You know, I've got this podcast. Yeah, I've got one tomorrow. Um, so um, yeah, I don't go, I don't have to go into work from eight to five every day like a lot of people do. Uh, there's, 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 there are weaknesses to that, by the way. Being well, retired at 39, is great, but then you realize all your friends are working. Yes. So yeah, I, I'll text a buddy at one o'clock, like, "Hey, what are you up to?" And he's like, "I'm at work. Leave me alone." You know. <laughs> so it is. It's it's a very different uh, life, and I have more time and more flexibility than a lot of other people. I do feel like I'm as busy as I've ever been in my life. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a single dad, so when I have my kids, I I'm full throttle. Uh, I don't do anything else. I don't uh, you know go out for dinner with a friend. I don't do business deals. I don't do podcast interviews uh, I don't do anything um, you know at three o'clock I'm heading to my kids school and, and I'm full throttle until midnight trying to make them a homemade meal um, rather than just going out to eat all the time uh, trying to you know make breakfast in the morning and, and drive them to school and uh, soccer you got, you dad got practices, you, you got track meets yeah tonight I've got uh, my, my daughter's got a softball practice and then uh, my other daughter has a track meet and my other son has my son has a uh, basketball workout thing, and I'll be dropping off, picking them up, and 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 all three uh, in a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very very busy, um, but uh, it, it took a couple of years, but I, I I've been lucky. I've I've built up a really nice um, um, group of people that that helped me out when I need help. You talked about your childhood. 
you played basically everything, right? I mean, the nice part about that that life was you you had the time and the freedom and the opportunity to play basically everything you wanted to play. Mm-hmm. How did you get hooked on football? Football um, was something that uh, at one point decided that I could be really, really good at if I really actually put some time into it. Uh, if you ranked the sports, I'd probably love the most in order. Probably basketball one, um, baseball two, tennis three, and football four. Really? Um, I loved playing quarterback, though. Uh, but once you're talking about shoulder pads and helmets and people hitting and all those things, it really wasn't my mentality. I had you these, liked recess. I had these pacifist parents, you know, so... <laughs> Um, and I had two older brothers and having two older brothers and they loved sports and the oldest brother, Jaffa, he loves sports the most, still does. Uh, I don't care all that much. I mean, not that I don't care about it, but I, uh, it's truly a passion for him and it doesn't really matter which sport he's passionate about, you know, all, all the sports. And, um, so that sort of worked its way down, and that's just what we did. My, my parents, I can't say pushed us into sports. That's just what we did, and therefore they supported that. And, and my mom and dad drove to all of our games and tennis meets and um, all over the state of Iowa. Almost never missed anything. But, uh, yeah, I was the younger brother of, of having two older brothers, um, and I was the all-time quarterback. You know, we'd be in the backyard. And, you know, you want, it was fo- in the fall. You played football. That's what you did. And, and uh, we had a nice little yard. And, and I was the all-time quarterback. I couldn't defend. I wasn't good enough an athlete to defend those two. They could really sort of compete against each other. And my other brother Jeremiah, who's two years older than me, he was just a better athlete than me. So I couldn't really compete against him in some sort of one-on-one thing. So it was like Sage is the all-time quarterback. So, so did I, you get yelled at a lot for, uh, no, for not putting balls where, I, I, where they were supposed to be? They always went to the right place, I guess. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, in basketball, we played, you know, two-on-one and things like that. And I was always the younger brother. So I just grew up competing against people that were better than me. My male were two brothers. They knew all of my weaknesses and, and my strengths. And, um, and... I think I just got better and better and better. So once I got to, yeah, kindergarten, believe me, recess was my favorite, t- you know, kickball or whatever it was going to be. I loved it. And again, in that small town atmosphere, the good athletes, they just, you play everything. You don't play one sport. Um, so naturally when, uh, you know, basketball is in the wintertime and you, 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 I did tennis in the springtime and Iowa has summer baseball. So it truly has four high school seasons and in the fall. Seventh grade, I went for flag football. Eighth grade, I went for you know tackle football, and that was it. I didn't play pee wee football. I didn't play any sort of youth leagues. Really, I didn't wear any. I didn't wear a helmet until I was in eighth grade, um, and so I, it was a very uh, different way. Um, there was I wasn't a, you know some child prodigy here as you know as, as a eight year old like man this guy's gonna be a pro quarterback you know um, I was the kid that played a ton of sports at recess and. And, but academics was really, really important to my parents. Uh, that first and foremost, um, everyone in my family had very good grades. Uh, everyone went to college, everyone graduated. Um, and uh, that was always, uh, uh, that always became before the sports. I said that my parents didn't push the sports, they just supported us playing the sports because they knew we loved it and I think they loved watching us compete. So when did you realize, I think I might be good at this? 
were good enough to do this in college? Um, football. Yeah. Well, I, I would say this. When I was a sophomore in high school, um, I was called up to the varsity to play varsity basketball. Uh, I was called up uh, baseball to be a varsity baseball player. So it didn't happen a ton in my hometown. It was mostly, you know, varsity was for juniors and seniors. So I knew I was a good athlete. I mean, I was, I was tall and I was very skinny. I was, but my sophomore was about 6'3 and, you know, 165 pounds. <clears throat> and, but I got to uh, my junior year and, and I was the backup quarterback and I ended up starting uh, after about three games. Our starter got hurt and played the rest of the year. Uh, and I really didn't think about playing, you know, Division One uh, football at that point. But after the season, uh, I got a letter from Iowa State uh, saying they had a new football coach, Dan McCarney, um, and they were obviously my name came up on some list. You know, please fill out this form, and we'll be watching you. So that was the first time I was like, well, I could actually play college football. Before that, I think I thought to myself, well, maybe I could play college basketball. Maybe play college baseball you know I, I sort of had a rubber arm my arm never really got tired I could pitch all day uh, pretty good hitter you know those types of things and so um, I wasn't sure what I was going to play at that point uh, I loved basketball I was an all-state player my junior and senior year uh, but in the middle of my senior basketball season uh, I have set off me a football scholarship and as we're driving to Ames uh, my parents and I um, I remember having this conversation with them that uh you know, football, we felt like had sort of this untapped potential. You know, I played so much basketball growing up in my hometown. It, it was really a basketball town. Uh, played a ton of baseball, and I wasn't great at it. I was good, good high school basketball player. And, at, you know, I was 6'4", and I couldn't jump all that well. And, you know, I didn't see myself as going to make the pros or even a Division One basketball team. But we thought, man, football, I really do have potential. I mean, you're, I'm 6'4", and 190 pounds, and I've never really lifted weights before. But if I actually could focus on football could throw it forever, you know, all these types of things. Maybe uh, I could harness some of that potential and, and try to maximize it and end up being a pretty good, you know, college quarterback. Um, never really even thought about the pros. So uh, it was, it was, there's a lot of luck in it. And we made that decision. Um, it really helped uh, even gain that scholarship offer. There was a coach that was an Iowa high school coach, uh, Mike Woodley, uh, who was uh, hired to be on Dan McCartney's staff and he was like the tight ends coach and recruited a lot of the kids from Iowa and I used to compete against his sons uh, and a lot of them they're over there at Grandview uh, coaching now and one son's the head coach of the MBDL team hmm. uh, the Iowa Energy uh, Matt Woodley they, that family had great athletes uh, Matt Andy and Joey and, and Joey ended up being my fullback at Iowa State and Andy played basketball at Northern Iowa tremendous athletes but I used to compete against them in high school so Mike Woodley the dad I said, hey, there's this kid over in Makokota who, you know, he may not be a great football player, but he's a pretty good baseball player. He's a pretty good basketball player. Uh, we need those, like, local kids that come in, compete, gets good grades. That's not going to be a problem. He's, you know, I was um, uh, I was going to give it all I had, you know. And at that time, Iowa State just needed some hardworking Midwestern kids that, they, that, they were, could, that would they were, compete. They were your only scholarship offer? Only scholarship offer. At any level? At any level. You didn't get D2 offers? Well, and, and maybe they would have offered later, but no, I didn't get offered by, you know, Northern Iowa didn't offer me or, you know, Illinois State. I was getting, I will say, I was getting letters and phone calls and um, whatever else there is from all over the country. Ivy League schools to UCLA and Penn State and everything in between. I mean, um, and obviously all the smaller schools. 
but uh, I think everyone, I think the smaller schools is new. I was probably going to get a, a, a division one scholarship. So I think they were sort of, sort of waiting. Uh, and, and it was, it wasn't too long after the football season that, you know, Dan McCartney offered me that scholarship and, and I took it. Iowa State was in a bad place in 1996. Terrible. Describe it. Um, well, when I showed up there, um, if anyone knows the Iowa State football stadium now, on that north end zone is the Jacobson building, and it was being built. <clears throat> it hadn't been built yet. At the time, it was basically a one-story um, building that, you know, I don't even know if it, I can, I don't think it housed a weight room, but it was like a small little office building. It was, it was really nothing. I mean, it was, a, it was, you could call it a junior college facility. Um, and that, but they had plans and they were raising money uh, to build this, this Jacobson building. So when I first got there, uh, we, our locker rooms were in that Olsen building, which is the back of the Jacobson, but we really, we, we had no weight room. We were lifting weights on the other side of campus. Really? In the basement of what they call the Old State Gym on old concrete floors. The lights were barely working. It was as dirty and gross as it gets. And that was the first, my first six months of college football. That's where we lifted weights, uh, you know, before class. And then I went to practice. Um, Dan McCarney and Gene Smith, who was our athletic director, time, yeah. who's now at Ohio State. So, right. I mean, he's like the man of the man of, of, C, of basically CEOs of college sports. Um, they were really good at raising money. Anyone that's heard Coach McCartney talk, he's a very good salesman. And they raised money and, and built the, that Jacobson building, uh, became more of a legit uh, 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 university as far as athletics. But they were still missing a lot of things. We didn't have an indoor facility, really. Uh, we practiced at our rec center, which you know, if you, you want to go for a jog and watch practice, you could go for a jog and watch practice. I mean, there was no privacy. It was only a 60-yard field. Uh, and you weren't competing against Nebraska and, and Kansas State and, and, and Texas A&M and, and Texas and these schools that had just unbelievable facilities. And, and so when we were trying to compete against that, I mean, it was, it was, um, it was an uphill battle to say the least. And uh, the fact that we got turned around in my senior year, we ended up winning nine games and going nine and three and, and being a lot of those teams that had unbelievable facilities. Uh, it's 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 basically almost a miracle the way I look at looking back at it now. Now I would say it has unbelievable facilities. I, I put it up there with anybody in the country. Uh, it, it's I love the new coaching staff and but the, there's so much potential at Iowa State. It's such a great school. It's got great people, and but now they've got really good football facilities. Um, what do you remember about facing these guys, Nebraska? That was their peak. Yeah, that was well. That, that, add that to it. I mean. When we first got there, Nebraska was uh, as good as it as there was in college football. Uh, their third string team probably could have beaten ours. It wasn't even really it wasn't competitive. My my redshirt freshman year, my second year at Iowa State, we were losing sixty three to seven at halftime. I mean, it wasn't competitive. Um, we we had no no chance against them. And so, then senior year. And senior, we took them to the wire. It's 21-20 going into the fourth quarter. This is yeah. 2000. Nebraska yeah. is number – well, they're – They were ranked number one in the country, I believe. Well, they became number one two days later. Okay. Uh, but they're undefeated. They're coming off, you know, the greatest run, one of the greatest decades they've ever had. Yeah. Uh, and and you guys you guys are in it. You're, we're, you're we're a in senior – 
And you guys are sort of the upstart program in the Big 12, and it's it's we're, neck and neck going we're to the starting, Yeah, we're starting to turn the tide a little bit. My junior year, we won four games, and we were four and seven. And um, that doesn't seem like much, but from where I just described it, where the facilities were, 63 to seven, three years earlier, um, at halftime of a game. Um, we became very competitive my junior year. Um, we lost to Nebraska pretty good. I think it was like 49 to 14. That game wasn't, wasn't great, but we really became, we almost beat Texas. Uh, we lost by last second field goal. A lot of really, really close ball games in that four and seven season. And again, that, that my senior class, these, these are the guys that were being recruited as juniors when Dan McCartney first got the job. So we were really his first recruits. The first time they could really sort of try to sink their teeth into a, a you know a 16, 17 year old high school kid when you're a junior. Um, and so we really had a special bond, that class. And we really felt, I think after that junior year, if we could just you know win some of those close ball games, four and seven can turn to seven and four, or eight and three really, really easily. We just got to find a way to win those close ball games. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're October 5th. It's snowing. It's freezing. It's absolutely terrible. It's windy. It's straight coming from the north. and Which uh, is what it always is at Jack Trice Stadium in the fall. But okay, oh, not always. Not always. <laughs> but it can be. Um, it's better. It's not as windy now with this, you know, the, our south end zone has now been, yeah. been completely uh, closed in. It's, a, it's absolutely a beautiful uh, stadium. Um, but... Yeah, we have them right down to the wire. It's 21-20. Nebraska scores maybe the first play of the fourth quarter, from what I recall. Um, and we, Steve Loney, who's one of my all-time favorite coaches, he was our offensive coordinator. He now is at work with the Dallas Cowboys. He calls for this double pass. Uh, he's like, well, we have it. We have it. We might as well use it, you know. And so that double pass turned into an interception, which turned into, you know, from 28-20 to – 35-20 very, very quickly. And uh, we got steamrolled a little bit in the fourth quarter. But So you don't let him forget it, I hope. I, Ian, I, I haven't talked to him about it in a long time. I, I've joked around with you know the guy who threw the pass and uh, the other players on the team, but uh, we gave it our best shot. And Eric Crouch and I have talked about that game. Um, our team got a lot better. Uh, our players got better. We believed in each other. I mean, there's a mix of talent and there's a mix of – you know, work ethic and belief in those those types of things, which make up a pretty good football team, and and we were a pretty good football team in two thousand. You went nine and three. What was that? Was pretty close to Iowa State got really good the next couple of years too. Seneca yeah. Wallace. Uh, what was McCarney's gift? He can sell ice to Eskimos. I mean, he really is a great salesman, but he is. Um, an honest salesman. I think that's what so he, he has so much energy and excitement, and that's where you know when I say salesman, that's where it, where it really is. He has so much excitement and and uh, and energy uh, that he just pours into people um, and into that into that program. People love Dan McCartney because he he knew people's names and faces and what they did, uh, and he was like a positive light that wherever he went, whether it was a hospital to visit children on a Friday before a game. Um, to a, a recruit's living room, um, to speaking in front of people in Des Moines or a small town. He just had so much energy and passion for, for people uh, and, and for turning that program program around that it was infectious. And uh, I think that was his, his biggest strength. It wasn't X's and O's. He wasn't uh, uh, you know, some sort of science guru of football that uh, had you know, great detail of every aspect of X's and O's of you know, offense and defense. Um, but his players, you know, 
after you listen to him speak, you, you'd run through a brick wall, uh, hurt yourself and go do it again. Uh, he was a great speaker, is a great speaker, a great man. And I think a lot, a lot of people, thousands of people um, over the course of his time at Iowa State uh, can't say enough great things about him. Were you ready for the NFL? I mean... Not even close. You were not playing... No, I wasn't. I, I, you know where I was. You were still, you were still kind of rough around the edges. Very much so. Yeah. You know, our our offense was not co- complex. Right. Um, we were not a traditional, you know, pocket passing offense. We didn't do a ton of play action. Uh, we ran a lot of bootlegs. We had a, a fairly simple passing attack. The protections were not complicated. Um, we we ran the options some. Uh, so the NFL game is very very complex. And, uh, and I, I didn't learn that, that complexity at Iowa State. What we did though is we, we worked extremely hard. We worked together. Execution was at a premium at Iowa State. Uh, we really um, stayed away from turnover, stayed away from mistakes. Uh, everything was in fine detail. Uh, we just weren't super complex. So when I got to the NFL, I think you know, the work ethic from college that I got from Dan McCarney and the coaches and our, our strength coach, who Matt McGettigan, who was just phenomenal, who's at Air Force now. Uh, the, the attention to detail, um, the sort of how to be professional, always be early to meetings, um, always know how to talk to people and how to treat people. Um, you know, those types of things is what carried me through my NFL. It took me a couple of years to learn how to be an NFL quarterback, but I think what gave me the ability to have that sort of patience, the coaching staff to have patience with me, uh, where what was my work ethic and, and my ability to compete. Uh, once I stepped on the field, um, I, uh, and especially game time, uh, the, the lights didn't, they weren't too big for me. Uh, I just went out and I, I knew how to compete and knew how to win. And we do a you know, two minute drill, I knew how to compete at that and win at those. Um, but uh, yeah, it took me a while to really understand the X's and O's in football. And I think that's something that really never, and I think, you know, football is such a complicated sport that Peyton Manning was learning stuff at the end. Tom Brady is, I promise you, still learning a few things every single year about different aspects of the game. You're a uh, your fourth-round pick of the Redskins. I'm a Redskins fan. Um, it was a dark a dark period for the Which Redskins. I say Washington, by the way. I don't use that other Okay, word. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, uh, it's okay. You can do what you want. You didn't really get a shot there, right? I mean, no, and thank God I didn't. Yeah, I mean, that was, um, I, I that's, was, that's, as, what, that's what I remember. As we're saying, I was not ready. Uh, I was a third string quarterback. This is the time when almost everyone kept the third string quarterback. So, you know, I was drafting the fourth round, and pretty much all the guys that were fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh rounders that year, you know, from Josh Heupel and Jesse Palmer, and, um, you know, a lot of these guys, we were all like the, the third string quarterback. Uh, but yeah, I, w- I was not ready to play as a rookie at all. Um, I struggled to throw an NFL football, you know, come my college. They were brand new at the time. They, they changed the rules maybe in like 2007 or so that you could actually work in the footballs a little bit. I had this conversation a million times during the deflate gate right. situation uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but at the time they were like, these are brand new footballs out of the box. And I didn't, I didn't throw a good spinner like that. So I really struggled to throw these brand new footballs. Um, I struggled with the X and O's, the speed of the game. It was just all a lot uh, as a rookie. So I was... You know, happily on the bench uh, as a third string quarterback, but but that all changed the next year. Um, Marty got f- fired at three at eight and eight. We were zero and five, and then we went five and five, and then we went uh, three and three the last uh, six games to eight and eight. So eight and eight, you'd think not bad for a first year head coach. Dan Snyder up, ups and fires him. Steve Spurrier. Steve Spurrier comes in. 
So I get, I'm actually home in Iowa. Uh, you know, you have this time off January, February. Steve Spurrier gets hired. I immediately drive back, uh, drive or fly back to, to D.C. Uh, my agent's like, you need to meet Steve right away so he knows who you are. Or <laughs> you, else, need, you need to be, be on his good side. Yeah, or else you're going to be sent to NFL Europe or something too, or you're going to be the four-string guy there. Um, and so I immediately go out, meet Coach Spurrier um, and his staff, and uh, uh, they immediately go out and get Danny Warfel, uh, who's a free agent. Uh, after our first mini camp, um, I believe that uh, uh, our most, I think, I think Spurrier even told, you know, whoever the GM was at the time, early Dan Center, like, I'm happy with Sage and Danny as quarterbacks. Well, we go out and get a first rounder, of course, Patrick Ramsey. And then I think he still says at the time, like, I really like my three quarterbacks. Like, one of us is going to start. And I really did improve a lot. Um, uh, I learned a lot about football from from Spurrier, from his coaches, um, about the X's. You know, in that offense, you audible so much. Right. So you're always looking for coverages to throw touchdowns to. It's not like, here's the play, this West Coast play, and call it, here's the execution and your know, footwork. It was more of like, all right, you see this coverage, can you, th- can you try to audible to a play to throw it down the field? That's just how his mind worked. So you really sp- I spent a lot of time uh, analyzing coverages and then what plays are good against them and audibling and things like that. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about coverages from Spurrier more than I probably had in my rookie year. Um, and then after even a couple mini camps, we all got Shane Matthews. So now we have two Florida quarterbacks who are he Florida. Was bas- he was basically trying to recreate the fun and gun. The fun and gun. And we had yeah. Patrick Rams, who had a really strong arm, but he was recreating the fun and gun. And we had uh, Riddell Anthony and Jacquez Green and, and uh, uh, I'm having a blank on the, the other receiver. If we, he could have pulled in Chris Dory, I think he would. We had Chris Dory. That was the guy <laughs> I was thinking of. Uh, I, I, I should give Chris a call. I think Chris has a radio show down, down in Gainesville, does some stuff with the Gators. So, I, yeah, we had all these guys from Florida, all these receivers who hadn't really worked out in the NFL for their <laughs> other franchises. Well, they're not very talented, but okay. Well, they weren't talented, yeah, but, but, but uh, Spurrier thought, we made this magic happen with Florida. It's only been you know four years later. Why can't we just do it again? So we, we, get, we go through training camp, and we're all competing. I mean, I was, I was uh, year one, two, or three or whatever, and... And I was getting a lot of reps and playing pretty well. I played really well in the preseason. In particular, the third preseason game, I played really, really well. Which is an important one. Which is an important one. I played like the entire second half. And I, I, the first game, we had, we had five preseason games that year. First game was Os- Osaka, Japan. I start that game all the way to Osaka, Japan. A 17-hour, 747 flight from D.C. Um, stay about three days there. I mean, barely. I don't think I left the hotel. I didn't go to the stadium for practice. It was not a like sightseeing tour. Right. So I've been to Japan once. No, really didn't see anything. Um, and played in the stadium and, and started the game. Threw a couple touchdown passes. Did okay. Uh, and then, but that third preseason game played really well. And I think they decided. Well, Sage played really well. Uh, let's see if we can trade him because other teams are always looking for quarterbacks too and we sort of had four so I got traded to Miami Miami was looking for a, a good young third string quarterback Rick Spielman was at that Nebraska game who was the GM at the time he was actually at that 2021 going to the fourth quarter oh, Nebraska really? game he was there uh, scouting he was impressed by that game and then uh, obviously I played fairly well in the preseason uh, that year so uh, I think they gave up a seventh round pick or something you know whatever it was I think Spurrier they needed to fix the problem there and they're going to get rid of some, one, some quarterback and my guess is I probably had the most value other than Patrick Ramsey, who was a first-round draft pick. They weren't going to get rid of him, but and no one was going to trade for a Warfield or for Matthews. And so uh, I got traded to Miami, and I showed up there on 
uh, Saturday night. Uh, immediately hopped on a plane from there to Houston for the opening of the Houston Texans. Uh, pre, I mean, I'm wearing a Dolphins jersey now. You know, I, I think I was number five for the first preseason game, if I recall. But yeah, Ricky Williams is on the team. Um, and uh, I believe he scored the first touchdown in the net, that, what is the Houston Texans. I think it's NRG Stadium yeah. now. I think it was Reliant at the time. And, you know, David Carr is the rookie quarterback. It was the first year of the franchise, and we opened that play, so it was pretty neat. So, uh, but, you know, we get back really Sunday morning. Sunday's off, and I've got like three days, and I played the entire second half of the Thursday preseason game uh, that week, which is the fourth preseason game. You know, North Turner is the offensive coordinator. The offense was completely different than it was in, uh, in Washington, and either it's Spurrier or the Marty Schottenheimer's offense. It's, it's completely different. So I'm learning a new offense in like three days. Mike Shula, who's now the Carolina offensive coordinator, He's my quarterback's coach, and we're doing whatever we can to, to grind it, you know, get a dozen plays that I can run. And they're playing really well in the football game, and they kept me. So uh, I was a third-string quarterback that year. And and uh, very luckily, as I as we talked about earlier, I wasn't ready for the NFL. I, I, I tell people all the time, if I would have played my first couple of years in the league, uh, I wouldn't have lasted for 12 years. I, that would probably have been it. Hmm. If I had to play a, a full game as a rookie or a full game probably as a – as a, a second-year player, I'm not sure if I was g- good enough uh, and smart enough and uh, had an understanding of football enough to you know compete at the level that the NFL needed for a quarterback. You would have been exposed, and they would have yeah. Thrown, and you see that a lot throwing you into the trash heap. Huh? That's right. You see that a lot of a, a kid who's a, a lower-round draft pick uh, who maybe is supposed to be the backup or third-string guy, and then through injury or whatever goes out there for two or three games, doesn't play well. And that's sort of the end of it for them. You know, their confidence gets shot, pressure, coach might get whatever that happens, um, and that's the end of it for them. And luckily, I sort of had a chance to marinate for for about four years, really. And yes, so you're in Miami for four years, uh, and then you go to Houston, which you were just talking about, and you're you're playing behind uh, David Carr, who yeah, was, who was their number one guy. Well. But before we get there, uh, let me finish up Miami. So in my my third year. Um, in Miami, uh, Dave Wansley gets fired. I am starting the last game of the year uh, at the Baltimore Ravens, uh, which is not a great place to start a game with your first career start. So I this mean, is 04. This is 04. In Baltimore. Baltimore. You know, Ray Lewis, middle linebacker. I think Suggs, <laughs> I think Suggs was, was a rookie maybe. I'm not really sure. Uh, they had Ed Reed, who I threw an interception to. They he had, did? Oh, yeah. For All sure. Right. And he would have scored a touchdown, but he tripped on himself or he tripped on one of his guys. Or else he would have uh, scored a touchdown. But uh, did you kind of do that thing where you faked like you were trying to tackle him, but weren't actually trying to get him? No, I think I got ran over by one of the one of his linemen. Then he tripped on one of the linemen for running me over or okay. something. But uh, yeah, I, I I competed in that game and I gave it my best shot. Uh, I threw a seventy-seven yard touchdown pass in the first play of the game to Chris really? Chambers. So I was off to a great start. Uh, ended up throwing below 50% in three interceptions, but I competed much. I mean, Deion Sanders was the nickel cornerback nickel. in that game, right? So, the, here's, but the, the real luck was that Jason Garrett was the, was my backup quarterback in that mm-hmm. game. We had signed him with about six games left. Uh, the other quarterbacks had gotten hurt a little bit. I started the last game, and Jason was the backup. So, the following year, Nick Saban hires Jason Garrett to be the quarterback's coach. Uh, so, I... I, I was a free agent and Jason sort of said, you should, we'd love to have you back, you know? So I signed back for basically a rookie deal, one year deal, hoping I'd play better. Um, I was a third string quarterback still, 
but played so well in the offseason under Nick Saban. Scott Linehan, who's the offensive offensive coordinator, was the coordinator, obviously Jason Garrett, played really, really well during the summer and and, and training camp and, and those types of things. And I ended up being the number two guy going into the season. Uh, had a chance to play some during that season and played well enough that Kubiak uh, in, in, uh, in... What was Saban like? He didn't bother me. He was hard and he was fair. I think that's the best way that I saw it. And sometimes it felt unfair because he was so hard. But really, he was hard and he was fair. And from somebody from the Midwest, uh, the, that combination didn't bother me. Uh, life is hard. Sports are hard. For be, instance, what, what what practices were unbelievably hard. Really? Oh yeah, I mean, even as a quarterback, I was completely physically and emotionally exhausted at the end of the practice. Uh, it was hot in Miami, but he also would do things that were smarter than what Dave Wanstead staff did. We didn't do two days nonstop and practices in the middle of the afternoon uh, that would just wear guys out and beat guys up and wear their bodies down. Uh, he um, he had a great. Uh, mind for offense and defense. I learned a ton about defense during my time with him uh, because he was always trying to sort of beat the offense and we were always trying to find ways to beat them in practice. It was very, very competitive. He put a ton of pressure on his coaches, mm. a ton. Uh, Will Muschamp was a defensive coordinator um, and him and Linehan every day, it was, a, it was a battle. So every every practice was like a game because uh, we're all trying to prove ourselves. Scott's trying to prove himself, Jason Garrett is, quarterbacks are. The defensive coaches are that, you know, some of those guys came from the college ranks. So they're trying to prove that, you know, we know what we're doing in the NFL. We had, we had Junior Sale and Zach Thomas and Jason Taylor and all these studs on defense. And they got to act like, you know, they know more about the game than them. And these guys obviously know what they're doing. So it was, it was very, very competitive practices. And it was very hard, but it was fair. Um, he didn't do things just to do things. I, I didn't feel everything had a rhyme or reason behind it. And, and if he said something was a certain way, that's the way it was. Uh, he, there wasn't a lot of gray area in Nick Saban's t- style of football, and I appreciated that. So by the time 2006 comes around, you go to Houston, you're ready to play. I mean, you're, that's, you're as ready to play as, as you've been, right? I, yeah, I, I, well, I played a couple games uh, in Miami enough where I really – there was a game where we came back. Uh, I was, we were down 20, 23 to 20 going to the fourth quarter, and Gus Farrakh got hurt, and I played the whole fourth quarter. We scored three touchdowns and won with just a few seconds left to, to win that game against the Bills. And I think at that point I realized I can do this. I really can play in the NFL. I just brought a team back, you know, 21 points in the fourth quarter. Um, I didn't think I was, you know, going to the Pro Bowl anytime soon, but I, I had, I could play and compete in the NFL. I had value, and I think Kubiak saw that. I think he saw the way I was a competitor. I think he saw I was athletic um, because his offense demanded that. Uh, they liked athletes. You know, Jake Plummer was the Denver quarterback at the time, and he liked the bootlegs and all those types of things. And so. Uh, my skill set really matched up with his style of offense. And, and, you know, I got the phone call that Houston wanted to bring me in and possibly sign me. I made, I made some phone calls around the NFL to other coaches um, who I really respected. And they, they all, I think three of them all said, you will, you, that will help out your career a ton if you go play for Gary Kubiak. Really? I think he's got so much respect around the league about how he does things. And that also... Play, quarterbacks usually have success in his offenses. Uh, there's offenses that are really hard to have success in. Uh, his offense, if you're quarterback and you are precise and do what you're told to do and you execute, and he makes it black and white for you. 
this is the way it's supposed to be, this is what your read is, this is what your footwork is, do your job. And if you do that, you'll have more success than failure. Uh, other offenses are way more com are more complex. They demand a lot, the, the quarterback to do a lot. Uh, and then you and then you make mistakes when you're audibling all the time, having to change the plays all the time. Um, and uh, there's a lot of gray area there. I mm -hmm. think Kubiak makes the game sort of black and white for quarterback, and it allows the quarterback to go out there and then just compete. And you started about 10 games in Houston over three years, right? Yeah, my yeah, that is right, 10 games. I, my first year, well, my first year I backed up David Carr and didn't start but played some, played pretty well, but I also got hurt that year and, and ended the year in IR, broke my wrist. The next year I came in and they uh, got Matt Schaub uh, and they traded a couple second rounders for him. And so he was going to be a starter. He got a huge contract. Uh, but I ended up going 4-1 and one that year, playing the best football of my career uh, the following year. Played a lot again. Shop got hurt a lot in those two seasons, and so I went two and three the following year. Did not play nearly as well, uh, but I played well in some games. And and um, so uh, after that first year, I went four and one, um, and I knew what you know. Shop was the starter. I really want to have a chance to to be a maybe go starting quarterback. I, I felt you know after going four and one as a starter and sort of bought, bought my time. Man, if there was somewhere I could go and compete to be a starter, that would be great. But I was in the second year of a four year contract. Um, you know, that people talk about the recent huge deals of like Brock Osweiler's huge contract. You know, he went five one, he got eighteen million dollars a year. That's why the NFL is all about timing. I did mine in my second year. He did his, his second year of a four year deal. He did his year, you know, fourth of a four year deal basically. So uh, I didn't have the good timing like he had. But uh, uh, I after that third season where I went two and three as a starter, I did. They finally did work a trade to the Minnesota Vikings, and I was hoping to start going to compete with Tavares Jackson for the starting job. And, and, and you would have beat out Tavares Jackson. I'd like to think so. Uh, everyone liked me but the head coach. Brad Childress didn't seem to be a big Sage Rosenfels fan for whatever reason. But, um, you know, Daryl Bevel I'd known since college. He was a grad assistant at Iowa State when I was there because he would, you know, McCarney had come from Wisconsin, so I had a long relationship with him. Obviously, Rick Spielman was in Minnesota. I really thought this was like a perfect fit. But, no, Childress and I uh, – he, he didn't uh, love the way I played or whatever it was for whatever reason. And, and I was competing with DeVars. I played pretty dang well, I thought. Uh, and uh, But it didn't really matter because they had the opportunity to get Brett Favre, and that was sort of the end of it for both DeVars and I. The competition was over. What was that like when they brought him in? I'm trying to remember when they brought him in. Was it summer? They brought him in. No, it was, it was during training camp. Um, so it was August. It was August. Yeah, we probably had my, my guess. It was you know, going into the second preseason game or third, maybe or something like that. I'm not really sure. Was it kind of a bombshell? No, what? No, it was. It was probably surreal. Uh, nothing surprises you in the NFL. I mean, you know, you go from the starting, think you're, you might be the starting quarterback one day and battling it out in preseason to the next day you're watching a, you know, an SUV or I don't know, was it a white SUV or a black SUV driving down the interstate in Minneapolis and we're eating lunch next to Jared Allen and we're like, why is Childress driving far down the highway? I mean, it was such a strange, we're like waiting for them to pull up. It's, you like, know? The, it's like the OJ, the OJ. It, it really was. It was, that was very <laughs> odd. Uh, I knew, I will say this, once we, I knew we were going to sign him and once I saw him about, out there practicing and, and the whole thing, I knew like, all right, he's going to be the starter. Um, the pressure did sort of go away a little bit. I sort of thought, okay, well, I guess I don't have a lot of pressure as much as I had before. I was really putting a lot of pressure on myself, um, whether it's lifting weights or working out or watching film or whatever, because this was my big opportunity. That was that was as close as I became to becoming a legitimate NFL starter 
um, and I was going to do whatever I could to to seize it. So I, you know, I trained as hard as I'd ever trained in my life in that off season. Um, and uh, but yeah, once Far showed up, it was like, well, I guess I'm going to be the the backup or third string quarterback. What was he like? Oh, you can't describe Brett Favre in a 45 minute podcast. I mean, <laughs> you can't do it. Uh, he's unique. Um, the guy was made to play football. He really was. Uh, he, the, people like to say, the sort of mentality of a linebacker. Uh, he did. He, I, 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 he was so tough. I don't know how. There's tough. Like you're, you have to be mentally tough. Like you get beat up and you stay in there. But like physically tough. Like his bones didn't break. My, my bones. My, my fingers. My. Uh, lower legs they would have um there have been some breaks during that season if i took some of the punishment that he and took. he was doing it at 40 and he was doing it so i'm 31 I'm, i remember saying to myself he's nine years older than me there's no way i could do this when i was 20 i couldn't take those hits when i was 22 so he that's where that's where you get into the he just had better dna at least for football than i had some people just have better DNA than others. Adrian Peterson has, you know, one in a billion DNA made to be the running back position. Uh, and Brett had that. His arm was incredible, the way he could throw the ball. Um, the way he saw the game, you know, he had been through so many reps. And he, he saw so many things happening before uh, they happened. And he'd, he'd see a blitz coming and do something that would completely change the whole thing. Uh, the way he would throw the ball in running plays and uh, all the time, but they would usually work and say, why would you complain? You've but, said before that he just played by feel. Like he wasn't... He was the... Anyone that have, has heard of like Rucker Park, all right, Rucker Park is this is this uh, inner city basketball park in, in New York City and they you know they make those videos there and, and uh, he played the game that way. He was not John Stockton. All right, he was the guy that was seeing the game more of as an art form than a science. Uh, and yeah, he could feel uh, the rush coming. He could feel linebackers moving. He could look one way and throw it behind the linebacker's ear with like, he, he'd no look past probably five times a game. Um, <laughs> he, he, he was rarely looking right at his target. Uh, and his arm was incredible. Uh, how he wound up and threw that ball as hard as he threw it. He had a throw against San Francisco. San Francisco. The, the touchdown must have been like week to four or five. I could go on about that one play, uh, you know, for ten or fifteen minutes. But yeah, we are we're getting our tails kicked by San Francisco, and Favre just brings us back in the fourth quarter, and inching our way back and inching our way back, and we finally get to within striking distance, and there's not much time left. I'd love to go back through and, and hear about and sort of see the time and what the situation was, but basically. We need a touchdown to win. And there wasn't there was not much time left. There was like fifteen or twenty seconds left. And our receivers, because we'd been doing two minute drill like the entire second half, and we've been two, doing two minute drill on this drive, they were exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. And actually Percy Harvin was so tired we took him out because he couldn't I mean he was useless. He couldn't even and we put in this guy, Greg Lewis, who'd been riding the bench like the whole game. He was like the sixth receiver. And I think he's like a receivers coach, maybe for the Eagles or, or for the Chiefs or somebody. But he was like a, you know, one of the old Philadelphia guys that, that Chile had brought over in free agency. Um, just sort of a guy that knew all the positions, did everything right, but he wasn't big and fast and strong or anything like that. And he, but he had energy. And so they, he comes on the left side, and, and the two receivers, our tight end and, and the outside receiver, seniors, were so tired. They were, everyone was supposed to run go routes because we had like 15, we, and we were like on the 40 yard line. We had to get a shot in the end zone. They were so tired. They stopped at about maybe the 20. They literally just stopped and like <laughs> looked back, like, throw me the ball because the, the DBs are all, were all like in the 10 yard line. But Greg Lewis on the left side, 
he he was running full speed and and came around, sort of around the right, uh, ran down the middle and then sort of ran to the right a little bit. And those two receivers on the right, the tight end and, and senior rice, the outside receiver, since they stopped, the, D, the DB sort of came up on them, and then Greg Lewis went running right behind them and far somehow found them, found them in the back of the end zone. It was incredible. And in about a, it was about a six foot, six foot, <coughs> a six foot window. He throws it in. Oh, it was, it was incredible, and he got absolutely smashed by Justin Smith, uh, an All Pro defensive lineman for San Francisco after that after the throw. I mean, it was. It was an incredible, incredible throw. I mean, it was it was it was probably the greatest play I ever saw in my NFL career. That was the height. I mean, I know you didn't play a snap that year, uh, but that was the NFL experience right there. Like that season, it'd be pretty hard to argue with the ups and downs of that season. I mean, you were the you were yeah firsthand witness of a lot of, the, of things. Yeah, uh, I, I could t- I could probably write. You know, people say I should write a book because I played for Saban and Marty Schottenheimer and with Favre and Ricky Williams and you know, Eli Manning. Uh, that season is probably the biggest chapter of any of the twelve seasons. Um, you know, was it was it uh, uh, Feinstein wrote uh, um, Bobby Knight's book, yeah, season, season on, on the Brink. Brink. Well, that was that. That was season on the Brink. I mean, it was uh, it was uh, there was so much drama in that season. Uh, it was pretty obvious that Childers and Brett did not get along. There was a lot of stuff being spilt to the media uh, that was some true and some definitely not true. Um, there was truth about what Favre was doing offensively of changing plays and not changing plays. Uh, but he, <coughs> I've never seen a football player compete the way he did. And uh, it was, yeah, we were, we were within seconds of going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, you, you've, you've written, a, you wrote a column a few years ago about that that NFC, <coughs> the NFC championship game and just what an incredible environment that was in New Orleans and the last drive when Brett throws the pick um, that you guys were trying to get in field goal range to, to kick the game winning field goal to go to the Super Bowl and he rolls right and he throws back across his body and throws a pick and then you um, he goes to the sideline and as you guys are losing the, the coin toss for overtime he looks at you and he says, "I." Cho-. He says, "I choked." Uh, what a what an incredible scene that must have been. It was, and you know the reason I wrote that article because that whole game, the whole day was so unbelievable, sur- unbelievably surreal um, and incredible, and that whole season was incredible. But that game, and then what happened in that game, uh, it was so dramatic that. You know, I got home and I, I couldn't sleep that night. Couldn't sleep for a couple of days, and it was Tuesday or Wednesday. And, and I was talking to like my mom, and she said, "We well, should just write it down." I mean, I had an off season. We, you know, it was it was now almost February, and then nothing to do for a couple of months. So I started writing, and wrote sort of an article. It was it was pieced all over the place. I probably wrote certain things a couple times. I just you know, I I sit down for a week and go back and start writing. And then I saw Peter King. I, he and I had lunch. Uh, after my career was done or as it was sort of winding down and and uh, we talked about it. I, I, I told him that story about that and we came off the field after that and Brett had said that I choked and I told him I'd wrote, written this article is I want to read that article and so I took some time and did some editing and put it all together and sent it to him and, and they put it out pretty much the way it was the way I had written it <laughs> and um, it brings a lot of Vikings fans to tears when I think they read it it was pretty emotional 
uh, read and um, uh, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, for him to say I choked, but people made a really big deal out of that uh, when I wrote it and it, and it came out, you know, on ESPN, Osage Rosenfels wrote the struggle that Brett said he choked. It wasn't some... Uh, I didn't think that was an earth-shattering revelation. It wasn't earth-shattering. He did. Yeah. I mean, it happens. It happens in sports. People miss free throws. You yeah. know, people do choke and he did. Um, he didn't have to throw throw that ball. And I don't think me saying that was that big of a deal. It was just the fact that uh, him saying it and people reading it uh, seemed really, really real. It yeah. was really authentic. Yeah, yeah. And I it, thought it made him human. It wasn't. A, it, it was a private experience. And that's exactly what you said. It was a very private moment between he and I. He and I had a very close relationship that year. Uh, but I also think when I wrote the story, I thought, well, will he be bothered by me saying this and sort of what you just said? Uh, I don't think so. I think it just adds to sort of um, uh, how amazing he is and how human he is. Uh, human and flawed and imperfect um, and heroes, a hero to a lot of people, but also somebody that you know makes mistakes and in, 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 on the football field and off. I'm drawn to people whose strengths are also their weaknesses. His strength was his weakness. You know, his uh, bold way of living was also in some cases his his undoing like yeah like he, that play. Uh, a gunslinger um will win you football games and they'll lose you football games yeah. you know and what's so incredible about like a guy like tom brady is he is a gunslinger but he hones it in so well that he doesn't lose very many football games um but when they need to he can go out there and and do what Favre did you know yeah. when, when Favre had to bring a team back so yeah his greatest strength definitely was his greatest weakness and um, he lived life uh, on the edge, uh, and, and I think that's the only way he knew how to compete. He only knew how to play football sort of on the edge. Uh, he didn't know how to go out there and just execute. He didn't know how to. Um, he felt that there's execution, but if you really want to be special and win championships, you have to go beyond uh, just executing better than the other team. You never took another NFL snap. In, Not in, many people know that. In a game. Uh, your last snap was was 2008 in Houston. Correct. And you played another four years, three years, uh, four years. And you thought going to Minnesota was going to provide you an opportunity to be an NFL starting quarterback, and ironically, you never took another snap. That's right. How do you feel about that? Terrible. Really? Yeah. Um, I have huge regrets about leaving Houston, um, leaving Gary Kubiak. I love playing for him. Love playing Kyle Shanahan's offense. Uh, I love the guys on that football team. I like the city of Houston. And um, I went up there to sort of chase a dream to, to start. Uh, I don't really have, I can't say I have regrets about that, but um, looking back, I wish I would have, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would have been better just to stay in Houston. But I don't know. Um, I remember at the time thinking this if, this, if this is my only shot to start and I just re-sign Houston and do an extension and, and stay there uh, for whatever more years, um, I, would, I might regret when I'm 50 that I didn't give myself an opportunity to be an NFL starting quarterback. Uh, not just making the money of an NFL starting quarterback, but, but uh, you know, being one of the 32. And um, it didn't work out, and, and for a lot of reasons. And uh, Favre coming back the next year, backing up Eli, who never gets hurt, uh, and then my career just sort of fizzled from there. And um, and that was sort of the end of the road. 
uh, you know, for me. And uh, but yeah, it's it it does bum me out a lot because I felt like, you know, at that time when I was leaving Houston, when I was in Houston, going to Minnesota, I considered myself one of the top 32, 35 quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, but yeah, just a couple years later, uh, I was out of the league, and uh, so yeah, it was. It, it's a tough time to look back on um, that uh, I didn't really finish off my career the way I wish I would have. Not many guys do, though. No. Um, I like to describe the NFL as this train that you're on. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people are on the front of the train, some are on the back of the train. I was on the back of the train, but that was fine by me. I was on the train, right? And uh, as I was trying to move up to the front, um, I got to a certain point, and then I got moved all the way to the back, and then I got kicked off the train. And um, you can't really do anything when you're off it. Just just watch it keep going, and you watch it keep going, hauling down the tracks, and you, you stare at it for a year or two, and then you sort of look the other way, and then you stare at it back, and you look the other way, and then at some point you just sort of turn around and walk the other direction. I mean, it's always going on. The NFL is always going on. There's people are working out today. People are getting ready for the OTAs. The draft is, is coming up. Uh, I was a part of that for 12 years. But, uh, uh, yeah, I would have liked to have, have played longer. Um, I thought I could play longer, but, uh, but it didn't work out that way. Was it hard, have the four years since you got out, what's the adjustment been like? I know it's really tough for some guys to get out of that routine, you know? Well, I think it's, every guy, it's very unique. It's individual of how people handle it. Um, some people are, you know, they stay in their city, so they sort of have this, they're already, they're still maybe attached to their, their last team, or maybe they stay on, uh, stay in a seat of one of the teams they played for. Some guys go back to their hometown. Some guys go back to their, their you know, their college town. Uh, say Iowa would be like Des Moines for me or something. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Omaha, which is not somewhere I grew up. It's not somewhere I played professionally. Uh, don't really have that uh, group of people around me. So that, I think that was harder than actually not playing football uh, was the adjustment to really just sort of being out on an island by myself. And um, um, But I think, you know, I, having three kids and raising them and chasing them around uh, has, and I realize how important it is to them for me to be at their practices and be at their soccer games and those type of things that um, I, I fairly quickly realized that I was lucky enough to fulfill a dream. And you know, people say, well, what are you doing now? And, and it's like, well, I, you know, I, I could be coaching or I could be this or I could be in New York or wherever, but I feel like you know, I, I lived a dream and now it's my sort of dream is to try to raise my kids as best I can, spend as much time with them as I can, um, because they're going to be you know graduated and out of the house before you know it. What brought you to Omaha? That's a very complex question. <laughs> um, but uh, my ex-wife, uh, we we moved here. She she moved here at the end of my career, and I, and I moved here you know six months later when when I ended up getting released by the Vikings. So you're here because of the kids. Yeah, it's really the only reason I'm in Omaha. Yeah. So it's taken me a while to adjust, but uh, I've really have met a lot of great people, and uh, I see why people like Omaha so much. Uh, I want to ask you a couple quick hitters. The, the more annoying fan base, Iowa or Nebraska? Oh, Nebraska. <laughs> uh, Nebraska is. I don't think Iowa is as weird. I think Nebraska is as weird. It's it's a, it's strange. Why? Uh, it, it it just is. It's it's uh. 
you could say they're passionate, but it's not passion. It feels different than me. I mean, the, the, the expectations are so extremely high um, the, that when they win, it feels like relief. When they lose, it feels like the world's caving in. Um, I was, I don't think at that, I don't think they have that type of uh, uh, obsession with the team. I think what also is worse is since what I, what I don't like in Nebraska, the Nebraska football thing is since the basketball team is not usually very good, it's like all there is. So, you know, it might be February and you'll, I'll turn on the radio and they're talking about Nebraska recruiting. Like, I'm sort of like, who cares till they get here? We'll see them on the practice. We'll, we'll see them in games. And then we can talk about them. Let's talk about basketball. Let's talk about the other sports. Sage, I mean, that's how I am too. So it's it's very it's very it's very hard for me. Where again, over in the Midwest, you know, or over in Des Moines, I can you know, there's Iowa basketball, there's Iowa State basketball, there's there's other sports that people are into. I mean, Nebraska is, is great at volleyball. They're great at baseball. Uh, there's tons of things to talk about, but uh, it seems like they want to talk about the you know the backup nickel will linebacker during the spring ball that you know. Had a slight tear MCL. It's he's giving out for a month, and they'll obsess about it for, for you know, two or three days. Can Iowa State football ever win a Big Twelve title? Yeah, I really do think. I really do think so. Really? Um, I really love their coach Matt Campbell. He is bringing really good talent, uh, the best talent Iowa State's ever seen as far as recruiting classes. Their facilities are fantastic. The education uh, is very, very good. So. We're, we get a lot of good players that could have gone to other places, but they, they want to be an engineer. They want to be in vet, uh, vet med. They want to be uh, in agriculture. So they choose Iowa State over, you know, some of these really top schools. Um, so uh, I, I think that uh, we, we have an unbelievable fan base as well. Uh, that has really grown a lot since 2000. Um, the school has gone from about 24,000 to 37,000. It's a really growing institution. But I really do feel like, you know, the, the right team, the right quarterback, uh, the right head coach, uh, and, and the year where maybe the Big 12 doesn't have two or three teams in the top 10, uh, we could, you know, uh, sneak, one in, sneak one out and, and, uh, and, and grab a championship, um, especially in, a, in, a, in our sort of system where everyone plays each other. Um, why not? I, I think we can, can, we can compete with all those teams. We've taken, you know, the last couple of years, the top teams we've taken right down to the wire. Uh, we almost we were I think we lost Oklahoma Bay by a touchdown or two this last year. We we compete with those top teams. They just haven't figured out a way to get over the top yet. You can have any NFL quarterback for the next five years. Who you taking? Aaron Rodgers. Really? No 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 doubt in my mind. Yeah. Even into his late thirties, huh? Yeah, he's a video game. Yeah. How has the how has the the NFL changed in the five years since you've been out? I think social media has. You know, Twitter and, and Instagram, that stuff was just sort of getting going. I mean, guys were going on Facebook, I think, in like 2006, six, seven. I remember Owen Daniels coming from the University of Wisconsin and going to the team lounge area. And he had a couple of computers and was on Facebook. And I'm like, what is this thing? Uh, I didn't do any social media until I was done playing at all. So I think that has really changed the game because uh, there's so much, there's there's marketing all the time. You know, before the, the top players, didn't really market themselves, but they were being marketed by whether it's the team or um, or companies that were trying to do commercials or whatever. Now, every player can really market themselves uh, and however they want to do it. And um, honestly or dishonestly, the people try to create uh, a lifestyle of what that player is, what he's doing or what who he is or whatever. So I think that has really changed the game a lot. 
Uh, I'm sure it's very, very different in the locker room uh, than it used to be. But at the end of the day, what's so great about sports and football is that, uh, you know, whatever happens on the field, that's all that really matters. And you can do this, that, and the other with social media or off the field stuff. But uh, at the end of the day, it's you got to do your job on the field and you have to be very, very tough to play the game. Last question. Uh, let's say you're an NFL GM of a team that doesn't have a quarterback or doesn't have a good quarterback situation, which is about half the league. What's your strategy to win? If you don't have a good quarterback. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, you know, if you're Cleveland, if you're yeah. Chicago, if you're Houston, if you're, you know, well, de- even de- even Denver. Like, what do you do? Well, so defense defense wins championship. It's much easier to have a great defense than a great offense. You have to obviously have good coaches, but you have to. You're not supposed to say that as a quarterback. But no, that's the way it goes. Um it's, it's, it is easier to have a great defense. You put more salary cap money in the defense. You know, when I was in Miami, Jay Fiedler was our starting quarterback. He wasn't a great quarterback, but we won a lot of football games. Uh, you win nine, ten games with a good quarterback who's smart, a good running back, and a great defense. Our defense was unbelievable uh, at that time. Um, I said, you know, Jason Taylor's a Hall of Famer, Junior State of the Hall of Famer. I think Zach Thomas should have a chance at the Hall of Fame. We had Pat Sertan and Sam Mastin at the cornerback position. We had great, great players on that on that defense. And that kept us in a lot of football games, uh, which you win so a lot of those close ones. Um, and uh, you, you next thing you know, you're in the playoffs. So uh, if you're a, got a, you have no quarterback, well, this is really what Houston's doing right now. They've got no quarterback, but they got a bunch of studs on defense, and that'll keep them in a lot of games. And you hope that you have a couple games, your offense doesn't screw it up, and you, you win a little over half, and you make the playoffs. Um, and uh, once you're in the playoffs, it's you know, who, who knows. Uh, obviously, everyone would like to have a top 10 quarterback. That's hard to, hard to find. Uh, but uh, uh, it's you can have a top 10 defense um, through. You just got to have a couple of really good drafts and some good coaching. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can check us out on omaha.com slash podcasts or on iTunes. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have ideas for guests, send them to Dirk.Chatelaine at OWH.com.